Hello, and welcome to Academy Conversations Uncut, a podcast of rare Q&As with the world's foremost filmmakers, hosted by the Academy and released for the first time to the public, unedited. Today's panel was recorded in July 2019 at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills, California. Discussing the Academy Award-winning movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a comedy drama which pays homage to the final moments of Hollywood's golden age, we were joined by production designer Barbara Ling, costume designer Ariane Phillips, editor Fred Raskin, and sound mixer Mark Ulano. The panel was hosted by Jim Hempel. Here's Jim. Hi, everybody. My name is Jim Hemphill. Uh, before I bring up our guests, I have a little bit of housekeeping from Sony. They asked me to ask you to uh, do them and your fellow moviegoers a favor, and please avoid any spoilers after you leave here. Don't uh, ruin the surprises of the movie for anybody else, any of your fellow moviegoers, so that they can all experience it the way you just did here. Uh, now it's my great pleasure to bring up some of the filmmakers behind Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, starting with production designer Barbara Ling. Costume designer, Ariane Phillips. Editor, Fred Raskin. And production sound mixer, Mark Ulano. So, Barbara, I want to start with you because one of the things I love about this movie is the production design is so expressive of character. I mean, you know, obviously there's the great recreations of Westwood Village and Hollywood Boulevard and all that. But on second viewing, I was really struck by how much detail there is in the environments these characters live in, you know, I mean, like Rick Dalton's house. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you created that environment, what some of your visual references were, and what were you trying to get across about Dalton? Well, everything starts first with a Quentin script, which is um, like a novel. He explains within his writing who these people are, kind of. He gives you this beautiful kind of backgrounds, and, um, and from that we kind of start to mold who they are. And with Rick's house, um, that's actually a a major labor of love for both Quentin uh, and, and myself together, but Quentin really had very specific pieces. The posters were all um, very much driven by uh, Italian posters with which Quentin has this incredible collection of. Um, same with even pieces of the furniture of how he was visualizing how this bachelor TV star of the 50s and 60s lived. So, and even there's little uh, elements on his bar of pieces from um, Quentin's house. Yeah. He would bring in a glass or a specific cup or a, you know little elements that he would dress within what I had worked with um, with Nancy Haig, my decorator, who's amazing. Um, but there'd be a saddle that actually that's Quentin's saddle. <laughs> you know he really wanted that saddle in the scene. So he pulls out the back of his trunk of his car and says, here, can we use, put the saddle over here? So, but it's a collection of, of who, you know, all the memorabilia that this actor, Rick Dalton, kind of pulled together to make this really bachelor pad 
Yeah, it's got a great sense of like history yeah. accumulated yeah. around the house. And I love that. And and the same kind of goes for the costumes in the movie. I mean, I feel like especially the three leads, everyone, but especially the three leads, you just created such iconic looks for everyone. And they tell you so much about these people right away. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, about your approach there in terms of, you know, what did you want the clothes for each of the three leads to say about them and to tell us about them? Well, you know, like Barbara said, it always starts with the script. And Quentin's script is like no other script I've ever read, just in terms of the attention to detail and how richly layered these characters were. And, um, you know, um, this the thing about this is my first time working with Quentin, um, unlike these guys down here. But um, one of the things that I admire so much about his work is he has created his own visual language. Um, that's very stylish. And this, I feel, is his most reportage-feeling film. And yet I wanted to, you know, you read, like when reading the script, there are certain things that were mentioned in the script that are part of the Tarantino kind of vernacular, like the Hawaiian shirt mm -hmm. and, um, you know, Rick wearing the leather jacket. Um, but it, the great thing about working with him is it was such a discovery um, in terms of, you know, we didn't know really what the Hawaiian shirt would look like, you know, that, what the color was. And, you know, uh, it, it started with the script and, and the way that these characters are so beautifully detailed on page. And then really it was just a matter of lots of um, discovery and, you know, um, I, and, and the, the juxtaposed, um, juxtaposing Cliff and Rick um, as the support guy and um, this, you know, 50s, 60s cowboy actors found himself kind of almost redundant in 1969. And then, of course, um, Sharon. Um, uh, so it's, it's so interesting working on a script where you have two fictional characters in the center of real life events and real people. So it was the juiciest um, mm. project for, for me, for a costume designer. It was just so fantastic. Um, and then um, I just, I guess the only thing I'd say about, about Sharon is, you know, we did lots of research. She was really well photographed. And lucky for us, Deborah Tate was a consultant on this film. And for me personally, that was like a, a weight being taken off my shoulders in that I could um, dialogue with um, someone who was related to Sharon and with her blessing. And uh, Deborah was very generous. Actually, Sharon's, um, for the first time in 50 years when we were um, working on the film, Sharon, um, Deborah was preparing an auction of Sharon's clothing and luggage. And so um, she invited me down to see everything. And actually, I asked her if we could borrow some of Sharon's jewelry and um, thinking that it would be a lovely kind of talisman for Margot and also for Quentin and myself. And she was really generous. And so we, we had that. And that was just kind of like a touchstone and to, to honor who Sharon was for us. Well, and since you mentioned this was your first time working with Quentin, I'm curious how you got the job, because this seems like, as you said, a dream job for a costume designer. So did he just offer it to you? Did you have to kind of give a presentation? What, what were your initial conversations with him like? Well, um, it was it was just like a, a bunch of like amazing, uh, fortunate 
happenstance. I was working on another film, and it was set in the 70s in California, and it went down. Um, and we had the whole time I was prepping that film, I had heard Quentin was doing a film set in LA in the 60s, and I needed to get to the costume houses to get stock for my background before Quentin's costume designer <laughs> did. So um, I was racing to beat that costume designer, and then uh, the film went down abruptly, the film I was working on, and I literally called my agent and I said, I hear Quentin's working on a film, does he have a costume designer? So that, and lucky for me, uh, I was able to get an interview and um, I read the script. I had to go to an office to read the script and I wasn't allowed to have my cell phone or, or pen or paper. I couldn't make any notes, which was terrifying because I needed to put a presentation together. And lo and behold, the script was so well written that I, I absorbed it. And, um, and then I just put a presentation together, met him, and lucky for me, got the job. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Fred, I know that like Quentin, you're a real cinephile. So I'm curious what your initial conversations with him were like. You've worked with him many times before. So when he first brings you this script and you guys start talking, uh, does, do you start talking movies? Does he show you movies, talk about the kinds of things this is going to be like? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. The The first thing he did, um, he brought me over to his house to read the script. But before he had me read it, he set up the world in which the movie takes place. He had he had a TV guide from the era. Actually, he had, you see Wojtek uh, reading the TV guide as he's watching Seymour on the TV. It, it's from the week of the Manson murders. And on the cover of it is Andrew Duggan in Lancer. Um, <laughs> So, so, um, so he, he gave me that. He, he also talked about the other actors of the era who um, Rick is sort of modeled on and just kind of set up what the time was like, how, how uh, really what you see in the movie in, in terms of um, Rick uh, kind of being offered the, uh, the spaghetti westerns, like how, how the, the TV stars of the day um, were doing that. And, uh, and, the, and then he... Uh, left me in a room for five hours to uh, to read the script and would poke his head in kind of like every hour or so to kind of see where I was and and uh, and see what I was thinking um, which was tremendous pressure but, um, <laughs> um, and and and, uh, and and you know so he also actually um, one of the things that he gave all of us um, was a copy of the pilot episode of Lancer. Um, that you know that was a real TV show. Um, that Quentin took the screen, like he bought the rights to the screenplay for the um, the pilot, and then completely rewrote it um, or adapted it. Like it is, it does actually follow the same basic storyline. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I got to say, these guys did an, a, rem a remarkable job, kind of. <laughs> adapting the, the, the costumes and production design of the Lancer episode um, to the Quentin world. Um, and uh, and, and one, one thing that's actually really crazy about that is the villain in the Lancer episode is played by Joe Don Baker, um, who's wearing a very similar costume, similar hair, mustache, and it's remarkable how much Leonardo DiCaprio resembles Joe Don Baker in that episode. If you if you if you get to see it, it's it's really incredible. Um, but uh, but so so he, he had me watch that, and you know, and uh, as as Quentin always does as he's prepping a movie, um, he uh, would do regular screenings of movies related to this one. Um, so we screened, for example, Valley of the Dolls, um, uh, specifically that that was that was the movie that Roman had said. 
said he, he felt Sharon gave her greatest performance in um, a, a, a movie like Model Shop, where you get to see uh, Los Angeles in, it's either 69 or 70. Um, and it's remarkable how unchanged it is. Um, uh, and, and of course, we screened The Great Escape. And so, so yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, Mark, you're the one who's been working with Tarantino the longest. I think you go back to Jackie Brown or maybe even earlier. We, we actually met on Desperado in Acuna, Mexico, where he came and cameoed wow. for okay. three days. So, and, and dusted on after that and everything forward. So is the process for you similar to Fred? Did you have to go over to Tarantino's house to read the script? How did you first get it? And what was your initial response to it? Well, well historically, I would get a script on location uh, in a packet, a brown packet with, you know, in the past, not this, not this show. And it would be, you know, hand, handwritten on the front and all the rest of that. And it'd be maybe eight or six, six or eight of those out there. This time, uh, like the others, this is very unusual. We we uh, had to read it in a private single single session, which is good because that's what I would normally do. But before that, I got a 50 gig jump drive of KHJ uh, <laughs> log tapes uh, <laughs> as sort of my entree. You know, so there was this sort of like for me, this is my coming of age and falling in love with movies time. So there's a lot of direct connection to the spirit of the film and Quentin, you know, there's a whole musical conversation that goes on between us that's, that's almost nonverbal that brought me inside the spirit of this and then reading it. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. You know, uh, and I think you, you put your finger on it as a novel. Mm -hmm. Um, it really, it really resonated. This is about acceptance and gratitude and all these sweet, you know, uh, heart generous things and the, the love in the movie, um, what was what really struck, struck me from the outset. And it really is up there too. That was on the page and now it's on the screen. Well, you mentioned that you would ordinarily always just the first time read the script straight through like, like that, you know, for story. Once you've done that, uh, what's your process on the next couple of readings in terms of what, what sorts of things are you thinking about? What are you thinking ahead to in terms of problems you might have on a movie like this on location? With Quentin, I try not to use the word problem. I always look at it as opportunity <laughs> um, because he is um, very, I mean, it's all about character, character, their development uh, and, and believing in those characters for the audience. So character takes us to the journey the character's on and the environment the character is having that journey in. Um, and through that, his, his, I would say, dedication to, to uh, performance um, uh, enables a really great collaboration on the set. If anything is threatening performance or breaks connection with character on the set, um, then we're then we're in a totally partnering situation. So for me, that first read of the script as a journey myself, so I can be inside the mind of the movie and not be in any sort of technical concerns, gets followed up by an intense combing through in the second and third reads for for things that are are questions. You know what what. What options can we bring here? I try not to bring an ideology to it because even though uh, we work together on a, on a repeated basis, every project's different. And it's, it's really important not to come to, with some predetermined idea, and with Quentin especially, because he will throw curveballs at you every turn, but they're the kinds of curveballs that really bring you up to your, your better place. You know, they're, they're, come on, come on, come with me, you know? And um, so that's, that, that's what, I bring to here, and because there's such a community of people around Quentin um, that have been there, like Fred and 
<laughs> we joined the family. Um, some of us have been working and making movies together for 25, 30, 40 years. And, and, and so when you get, it's like a, it's like a jazz band. Uh, there, there's just this, this joy. And, and Quentin is, it's old school that he has this repertoire company behind him and it frees him up to be in focus with his actors and with his scenes and, and knows that he's got that support around him. So it's a privilege. Um, I, I, I just want to sing Mark's praises for a moment because one thing that, that he's not going to say himself, but that I'll say is that Quentin doesn't do ADR. Mm -hmm. So when he decides to shoot a scene between Brad Pitt and Margaret Qualley, um, in a car driving down the freeway with the windows open, Mark has to figure out a way to get a good recording of that. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how he did it. Um, and certainly our post-production sound team helped, but there was no ADR. <laughs> well, it, again, it's, it's not about the sound. It's about connection to the characters. And, and so that's really about proportion, balance, you know, not too much, not too little. Are we connected to them as characters? Will the audience believe, you know? And and uh, once you have that as your threshold versus you know some you know theoretical thing, then you then you have you know you've got a roadmap. And and if if we break into that, that's a conversation cue where you know there's I'm concerned here we might be losing connection. And he listens to that. He he you know because it's it's where he lives and and he invites us to join him there and that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, the issue of character and performance leads me to a question for Fred, uh, which is how you see your role in terms of sort of showcasing the best that the actors bring to the movie. I mean, I'm, I, I've, as I understand it, Tarantino doesn't shoot a lot of coverage or multiple cameras or any of that kind of stuff. But it seems to me from watching the movie, like he allows his actors to be very playful. And I'm wondering if you get a lot of variations on things and how you calibrate that and, and uh, you know, what you see your part as in terms of cutting performance. Uh, I mean, he, he he definitely doesn't shoot multiple cameras. Um, he he shoots the coverage that he wants, so you know, the action will have more coverage than uh, than a dialogue scene. But but um, uh, you're you're you have this amazing cast, um, and they're actually pretty dialed in by the time they get to the set. Um, there there's there's not there, there's really no improv unless Quentin has specifically designed a scene to be improvisatory. Like this, the scene where, um, where Rick has his freak out in the trailer after he blows his lines on set, that was, uh, that was Quentin kind of saying to, to Leo, I want you to hit these specific beats, but I'm not gonna give you the dialogue, I just kind of want you to do it. And he shot it from the same angle, four takes, and uh, and then it was kind of up up to me and and then Quentin to to kind of put it together in the editing room um, and find what beats we wanted. Um, uh, but you know, with this cast, I mean, there's there's not a false beat in there. Um, so it was really uh, just finding what's what's the, the what angles do we want to be on to to, uh, to to bring out the emotion as, as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Well, Ariane, I'm curious about your relationship with the actors. Now, I'm assuming that probably some of the leads, like Leo and Brad and you know Margot, were cast fairly early on. But in terms of some of the supporting cast, did your sort of uh, ideas or theories about how to costume the characters evolve uh, based on who was cast and based on your interaction with them? The great thing about this cast is it's multi-generational. 
which is so great. We have Bruce Willis's daughter. We have Uma Thurman's daughter. Tim Roth's son actually is a uh, has a little cameo. Um, Luke Perry's son um, was in. So it was really like a family. Actually. Um, I didn't have the pleasure of being asked to do a cameo in the movie, but almost every <laughs> single person who's worked with Quentin before is in the movie. You can see Zoe Bell actually has, mm -hmm. I believe that was pretty improv too with Zoe and the Green Hornet. Um, that wasn't 100% scripted. As, as I recall, he wrote it the night before. The night before, uh, the yes. night before. Um, yeah, I mean, for sure, Quentin cast this in... Uh, group. So what I've what I understand is that he cast Leo and Brad together, and he did the same with like the Manson family, where he cast them in a group. So we kind of got them as a group. Um, I think um, Pussycat was the the kind of last one to be cast, um, and you know a lot of research had gone into what they were going to be about before that. And of course, um, for me, it was really great because with the, the younger cast, because I really wanted the costumes to be quiet for the Manson family. And um, because I felt like there's going to be so much judgment on who they are when they're on screen by the audience, because we know who they were. And I really was impressed. And I was really I mean, Vicky is such an amazing casting director. Um, the faces, you know, I really wanted to show the youth in, um, you know, these are very young actors and show how young the, the Manson family was. So um, for me, uh, it was like a treasure trove, really, of, of all kinds of actors. Of course, working with Liam Brad was amazing and um, a lot of preparation went into what the costumes were gonna be with Quentin and then they came into the room and the, um, Quentin came to the first two fittings with Leo and Brad and together we you know, figured out who Rick and Cliff were gonna be visually. They had already done a lot of work with Quentin. So we'd all worked separately with Quentin, so that was, Magical. I mean, as a costume designer, that's where the magic happens. And, um, you know, we had spent so much time together collectively in these um, movie nights and time with Quentin. And Barbara, I know, was on endless location scouts. I think we had over 100 locations, and we have over 127 speaking parts. So it was monumental. Uh, well, we're running out of time, but I have to ask you, Barbara, really quickly about the Hollywood Boulevard makeover, because uh, I live off Hollywood Boulevard, and I woke up one day and walked my dog, and suddenly it had turned into 1969 overnight, <laughs> and I'm curious how logistically you did that. I mean, what goes into to how many months of work go into that kind of, quote-unquote, instant well, uh, transformation? I, I wish it was that instant, <laughs> that it was overnight, but... Uh, no CGI. No CGI. Um, no, that was Hollywood Boulevard was um, was tough, and it was also uh, pretty amazing that the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce and the city councils said yes to what we were doing. And that uh, again, I give a, besides Rick Schuler, our location manager, I give cr a big credit to Quentin because he went down to that meeting and looked at them and said. I'm passionate about Hollywood. I'm passionate about showing it back. You know, this is to me the where all of my brain came from. And they gave us it in two sections. They said you can't do all that you want to do in one shoot. So they we took two blocks, both sides, which is four blocks, 
uh, by Musos first. Um, we were, and then months later, we could t do shoot the other side. So we actually split it up because we would have. We already had the worst traffic jam ever. <laughs> we would have had the worst traffic jam in the entire city ever if we had taken the whole thing. So, and that transformation was um, working very heavily locations again, uh, I can't even believe how many people they had to have to go to each individual storefront, all the people who own everything on that block, get the permissions. In the meantime, we tried to build, we designed everything and tried to build as much as we could off-site and then worked out almost like, you know, an army of, you know, engineers, how construction would go in first, with cranes, put facades back on the movie, you know, and then paint after that, and then you know, working in stages. And then uh, my decorator Nancy Haig, who had her entire battalion, uh, were the last layer to go in, and they only had really two short days to actually tear out everything inside of stores on our facades and dress the entire thing and um, electricians working on top. I mean, it was a really, uh, and we could never not have tourists. <laughs> that one thing they says is don't ever, we have to be able to have, it's the most heavily toured street I've ever seen in LA. <laughs> and I'm from LA and I had no idea that tourists were there 24 hours a day. So you had a battery of people helping the tourists not run into all of our stuff as they did trying to take selfies of things and then smash into the, um, so we stopped no tourism. They got to be there with us building uh, and watch it, which actually was pretty fun mm -hmm. for them. Well, all the hard work you guys did really kind of led to an effortlessly entertaining movie yes. on the surface. So I want to thank you all for coming out and talking with us about it. It's a great movie. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Academy Conversations Uncut. We hope you enjoyed this unique access to a members-only Q&A at the Academy. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and help us reach film lovers around the world. This podcast was produced by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences.